Welcome to Finance Unplugged, where we aim to educate, entertain, and guide you as we explore the world of finance so we can all make smarter investment decisions. Here is your host, Pernille Engard. Welcome to the Finance Unplugged. My name is Pernille Ingo. I've been a finance and business journalist for more than 20 years, and every week you can join me in a panel of investors, economists, traders, and CEO discussing the current markets world economy and political events. With me today, I have professional trader, author and trading coach Tom Hogo and Nils kostrup Managing Director at Dunn Capital Europe. Although most of you probably know him as the founder of the Top Trader Unplugged podcast. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks very much. Yes, you too. And thank you for joining me on this special edition for the Podbean Finance Week. And uh, because this is a special edition for the Podbean Finance Week, it's important for you to know that we are recording this on March the 12th. So, If you notice something that may not reflect what has happened since our recording and when it is published at the end of March, then you know why. Well, gentlemen, we have a lot on the agenda since the first weeks of March in the financial market have given us a lot of what should we call it interesting headlines. But before we get into the mood of the market trends and the world economy, I would like you two to give a brief introduction of yourself. Tom Hogo. My name is Tom Hugard. And I am a professional trader. I would also say that I'm a historian, uh, a stock market historian. I find it immensely interesting to go back over time and find clues and patterns that has happened over the last couple of hundred years, in whether it's in the bond market, in the stock market, and in individual stocks. And I do that from the point of view that whilst our technology keeps developing, Human beings are pretty hopeless at developing at the same pace. And our behavior patterns tend to be the same whenever we are under stress or when we are euphoric. And these things tend to come in a cycle, a cycle of patterns. So whether I'm day trading or I am investing my money, I tend to not just use technical analysis, but I also tend to look at what I would call the, the bigger theme and where we are in the bigger theme. Mm-hmm. And Tom, on top of all that, you have also, for the past seven years, been part of the most successful daily Danish finance podcast. Now, I forgot who the host is. Can you help me? I believe that's you, my dear, Penile, and together with Bordil. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I, uh, I was invited about seven, eight years ago to participate in a competition where you had to invest 250,000 Danish kroners. And uh, to me, it was a real eye-opener because I've never really invested in shares. And I've had my ups and downs in that uh, in, in that radio program. But one thing I know is that I've, I've learned a lot about investing in shares as a result of being part of it. Because before that, I was always just engaged in, in currencies and commodities and stock indices. So that's been a real eye-opener. Yeah, and you have to stick to the things that you've already been doing. Is that the conclusion? Yeah, I think the, the conclusion is that as a day trader, you can have an immensely different time frame and a very different perspective. While an investor, an investor has the have the luxury of time. They can make a poor entry on a stock, but you know, over time it will write itself out if they caught the right kind of trend. But as a day trader and as an intraday trader and a scalper, timing is everything. And one of the aspects of investing that I had to learn or appreciate more is that I actually had a lot more time at my disposal when making these decisions. And at times in the beginning, I would rush in because I felt, well, the door's closing. And if I don't get in right now, <laughs> the train's going to leave without me. 
whilst when you are investing, you and, and that and that philosophy works very well when you are a day trader. But when you are an investor, you know it pays at times to just to take a chill pill and uh, and let things come to you rather than chasing it. Okay, thank you, Tom. Isn't that like a, a saying? I know this is a podcast, and I don't know if we can edit it. But isn't it the same when when we were young and we are you know at, at the disco? If we were chasing the girls, and it, didn't they always just run away? We had to sort of let them come to us. Trading is not so indifferent. I, I, I seem to remember something like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm still young. I don't know about that. Nils, many of our listeners still already know you from the Top Traders Unplugged, but perhaps you should introduce yourself for those who haven't met you yet. Yeah, sure. Absolutely happy to do so. I mean, I guess my background or at least my current way of investing is completely opposite of Tom's, which makes it really interesting and and fun. And I'm very excited about having our conversation today. But my background is really that I started out as a government bond trader back in the 1980s in Denmark. So I kind of had a great way of learning about the markets without losing my own money first, I guess. So that was a, a pretty cool experience. But In around 1990, I started my own firm with a colleague and we got into futures because speculating in government bonds was very expensive back then. And on our part, we were actually hedging all our own exposure in the German Bund future in London. And we knew that that was a lot cheaper and a lot more liquid. So we came up with this bright idea that we would set up a firm and we would convince all the Danish speculators to use futures in London to do so. And of course, that was quite an uphill battle to uh, to do just that. And I guess voicing my frustration to uh, the largest futures broker in London that we were working with, they came up with this bright idea and said, well, actually, over in the corner of the office, we have this group of people called Managed Futures, where they actually build track records so you can show how well you can do by managing money using futures. And that was really my entrance point. And I've never really looked back in terms of what I've done. So I've spent the last 30 years in the Managed Futures slash trend following camp I've been fortunate enough to work with some of the legends uh, in the industry, as well as having run my own firms. Um, And right now I work actually for one of the oldest managers in in the world on capital management, where we've been doing trend following for almost 47 years, which is quite astonishing, I think. And then as you rightly said, you know, about seven years ago, I started the Top Traders Unplugged podcast to help people get access really to some of the people who nowadays are incredibly successful, but many of them are my friends because we started out more or less all of us uh, 30 years ago in the industry and just try and help people build safer and better portfolios. I think you can do that. So, I mean, I know the saying that we can't predict the future and so we're not trying to do that, but we can prepare. And that's really what I hope the podcast will do uh, at the same time. I hope it entertains people and inspires them to um, think maybe a little bit differently to how they build portfolios. I want to add a comment to that. Do you remember when the the book by Jack Swagger came out, The Market Wizards? And you remember the interview with Richard Dennis? Sure. What was so interesting about Richard Dennis and his take on trend following was that he, he stated, look, there's not really any magic to trend following. Anyone can do trend following, but... I could post my rules on the front page. This is his famous word. I could post my rules that drives my fund on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And anyone who picks up that day's edition of the journal wouldn't be able to make a penny out of trend following. And it just goes to show to me that you know we have been professionals in this arena for many, many years. But we are still going to work every single day thinking, what is today going to throw at us? Because 
mindset is everything. You you think you have the best laid out plans and rules for trend following, but then the, the market throws you a curveball and you think, what what's happened there? Do I have a rule for this? I feel like I feel like rubbish. I just dropped five percent on my portfolio, and I'm still supposedly following the trend. It, it, so I, I'm I'm really excited to, you know, to be your sparing partner over the next thirty five minutes because I think uh, we may come from very different perspectives on how we cream out a dollar in the market. But when it all comes down to it, we're two guys that show up in the morning trying to do our best, maybe from a different vantage point. But at the end of the day, we also have some very common denominators how we approach the market. And I think that's gonna we're gonna have to dig in under the surface to get them out in the next 35 minutes. Well, let's get digging then. Yeah, and I, I know <laughs> yeah. Penil is excited to to get started, but I just want to add one comment to that, and that is that I actually had the pleasure of interviewing Richard Dennis uh, two or three years ago on my podcast, and he he doesn't do many interviews, and and all I will say is that he certainly shared a few things that is not what the popular press have been uh, talking about when it comes to the turtle experiment back in the 80s. But anyways, people will have to go and find those episodes and and, and dig that out themselves. As will I. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you said, Tom, we have 45 minutes ahead of us discussing uh, the current market and I'll look for the rest of the year. I just want to ask you, Nils, now Tom, he mentioned a chill pill. Have you had any need for that in the last couple of weeks? Well, the, the great thing about what we do as trend followers is that actually we generally don't need chill pills. And I say that in the sense that we are a 100% rules-based, we are 100% disciplined. And so what we really try to do is keep all of our emotions out of the investment process. Now, that's not to say that you can't get a little bit excited when you see things happening in the markets. Of course you can. But I find, and I'm I'm also really interested to to uh, get into the discussion. I think what's happening at the moment is incredibly important, not necessarily for us as trend followers, because you know it's always different. People say, "Oh, this time is different." Well, it's always different. So that's what we try to do. We try to adapt by using rules. But I know you're going to ask us about our outlooks and all of that. So I'm going to have to take off my trend following hat, where I don't predict, and give you a little bit more than that. So I'm ready for that. Well, this may come as a surprise to you, but I actually met a turtle, one of the turtles, Russell Sand. He got chosen for this particular experiment with Richard Dennis because of his uh, affinity with backgammon. I think he had was the world champion or a runner-up world champion of backgammon. And I, uh, I had the pleasure of going to the Ashbury Club in, in London to play backgammon with him. Which uh, I, I better be careful what I say here because this will become public knowledge. So we'll we'll better leave that behind closed doors. But one of the things that intrigued me about learning about the trend following perspective of say Richard Dennis was how they were very adamant that when you catch a trend, you need to level up. You need to expose yourself more as the trend matures, as the trend progresses. Meaning that if you buy something at, at at 100, you'll buy again at 125, 150, and so forth. And you have a very mathematical, uh, almost a mechanical rule set for doing that. And I took that idea. I'm thinking, well, you know, one day in five is a trend day in the market on an intraday basis, meaning that when the market opens, it will open at the high of the day or the low of the day. And that happens one day in five. And if I one day in five can be on board, and obviously I spend all my time trying to hone in on those particular parameters and the characteristics that tend to set up a trend day. It's often on a gap up or a gap down. I won't bore you with the details because, you know, that we could spend the next five hours talking about that. 
But the whole idea that Richard Dennis presented to me as a relatively newbie in this industry gave me the idea that whatever he does on a longer time frame, I can do that intraday. And so I, I just like a big nod to Richard Dennis. He, he, he may not even be aware of it, but he has influenced many of us day traders to completely differentiate ourselves from the typical day trader who, you know, who will, who will risk five to make five. But in reality, I took an account only last and I, uh, on, on Monday, today is uh, Friday. Uh, I took an account on Monday and I made a thousand percent in one day. And, and the great thing about it was I documented it on video. I recorded everything I did. And I would never have been able to do that had I not been exposed to the ideas of trend following and Richard Dennis. Mm. Nils, have you ever been day trading? Uh, not in a proper way. And no, and, and I would say no. Well, when I was a government bond trader back in the 80s, I mean, yeah, you were trading all the time because you were partly market maker and partly kind of risk manager. So you were trading a lot. Um, but not the way we now think about day trading, I have to say. Mm. Nils, could you satisfy my curiosity about a particular aspect of market making? Because it's one of those that have been lost on me in my career. A market maker is supposed to provide liquidity. But am I not also right in saying that a particular market maker will also be able to, if he spots a trend, will maybe hold on to the position that he's just been given and then trying to make a, a few extra basis points out of it? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there, these things were very different maybe back in the 80s. It was probably a little bit more Wild West back then. We were allowed to do a lot more than maybe you are today with certain risk limits or compliance, whatever it was. But certainly that was our job. Our job was to make money. And sometimes we would take on risk by making a market. And sometimes we would hold on to a certain level of risk because we had an expectation that other investors would come later in the day and they would also be buyers, for example. So we would hold on to any long positions we may have so we could make an extra bit of money for the banks. But uh, yeah, no, I think you. I think it's it's a bit of a mixture. I think the question is, at the end of the day, do you want to be flat as a market maker and say, okay, I'm just doing it for the day? Or do you also take maybe the position with you overnight to, because you have a little bit more of an, a feel for what's going on in the markets? Maybe there's some shades of difference uh, in that. But yeah, I, I would agree with you. Let's get to the current market now. Tom, I have been following you trading for the past 10 years and I will consider you somewhat of a stock market profiler. How would you describe the current market? Deep breath. I would consider the current market frothy. The, the, the current stock market has all the hallmarks of past bubbles that I have seen. Um, and I'm talking about the tulip bubble, the South Sea China bubble, the bubble of 1929. And I can't base my opinion on the numbers that I see in the market. It's the rhetoric surrounding the market that has gotten alarm bells ringing everywhere around me. It's, it's not whether the Dow is at 30,000 or 40,000. I could almost care less about that. What bothers me is the rhetoric that I see in things like GameStop, like in Bitcoin, in Tesla, in the segments of the population that have no place in the stock market. And I'm not being a snob here, but by no means. I think every man should learn about the stock market because it's a great place to be. But you have an 
and a disproportionate amount of interest in the stock market that we have never seen before. And this has been accompanied by an evolution in the prices that I have never seen before since the lows of March 2020. And I'm deeply concerned about that because the general population is rarely rewarded with such big returns as they have seen this year without a significant correction coming. The general investment public, they will on, on, on average make about 7% a year historically from a historical perspective, but they have certainly made more than 7% this year. And it's not that I don't want them to earn 7%. God, I want them to earn 70%. But when I begin to see the interest that we've had, for example, the podcast that we are running out of Copenhagen, your, your investor, it has seen an enormous, attract an enormous amount of younger people who are all of a sudden thinking, this stock market, I got to be part of that. My friends are part of it. I want to be part of it. And and those phenomena, they're like, they're social phenomena. When I grew up, we we used to, I'm going to have to use a Danish word here, but it was called klistermerker. It's, it's basically just stickers that you you collect stickers. And before that, we had something called glatsbilder. And for my for life of it, I don't know how we translate glatsbilder, but it's like, is pieces of glitter paper, and we would collect that. And it's the same that we are witnessing in the stock market. Now it's just with, with stocks, and that deeply concerns me. But there is a very famous saying among cycle analysts, and it states like this, and I, I hope that Nils will now nod, because I, I hope that he's part of this belief structure. And it says that, that 90% of the gains in a cycle comes in the last 10% of the duration of the cycle. And I happen to think that we are at the final, final froze of an enormous bull market that started in 2009 because the gains we've seen since the lows in, in 2020 have been dis- disproportionate to what we have seen before. Mm. So I'm concerned and that's why I'm focused on the short side. And it's interesting to me that you say that, Tom, because I mean, I couldn't ag- agree more. I think that's absolutely spot on, Right. But I think there's something that might be even more risky than just looking at the stocks. And that's looking at the bonds where we felt that that's the safe place to be. But that cycle is also something that, in my opinion, has hit the low in in, in this case. I truly believe that the 40-year-ish interest rate cycle exists. And what really concerns me and where I have to say, I don't don't know what's going to happen to stocks, whether there's still another... X thousand points up in the dark. I have no idea. But what I do feel is that as interest rates, as we've seen in the last, say, six months or so, mm. start to pick up, a lot of investors, there's the speculators, like you say, Tom, and, and there's a lot more of them now. And we can see that on call put ratios. We can see it on margin, stocks bought on margin. It's it's all the alarm bells are there. But I think, unfortunately, that most people, including all the institutional investors, they have built their portfolios, the classical 60-40, for a deflationary, low interest rate environment. And that's been great for 40 years. I just worry what's going to happen when we realize that that era is over and we start seeing interest rates going up. We start seeing inflation or at least expectation of inflation coming back. I think some of these portfolios will be absolutely devastated by this and that's going to have so many more social consequences for the world, really. Pension funds going bust, potentially, things like that. That's my worry. So I agree on the equities. 
but I'm actually even maybe more fearful that people are going to lose even more money mm. on the bonds. But the market has been betting on the interest rate to remain low, and then we see this suddenly sharp rise in the treasury yields. Don't you think that Fed Chair Powell will have our back on that one, Nils? Well, he certainly will try. It's interesting. I mean, obviously, next week, mid-March, mm. we're going to have the next uh, FOMC meeting. There is, of course, talk about yield curve controls like we saw back in the late 40s, early 50s. They're going to try and do everything they can. We saw yesterday the ECB come out and say well, they're going to buy even more bonds. They are certainly going to do what they they can. The way I think about this is it all comes down at the end to confidence, right? And um, as long as we have confidence in the Fed, that tends to be something that you can see as a relatively low interest rate level. I think that's one way of looking at it. You can go the other way back and say, well, what happened in 1981 where there was no confidence in the Fed? Well, interest rates were massively high. So I think what we could see is kind of 1980 in reverse if we start losing confidence in some of these institutions. And uh, I think there's a real risk for that. I mean, it's been driving equity prices up or assets in general up. So if they lose control of that, it um, it may be a very different picture. Now, Tom, he mentioned that he sees what you something that reminds him of the the tulip mania or the dot com crisis, and now we have China warns of a bubble risk in the foreign markets. That was, I think, last week. Couldn't you also argue that there's a there's a bubble in in the bubble talk, Nils? I think you could actually, yeah. Mm. And I've seen. Uh, I can't remember. I, I uh, but there has been a little bit of of talk about that. The problems with bubbles is that the people who are inside it, they can't see it, right? We hope to be a little bit outside it, so we think we can see it, but we may not be able to see it. And frankly, who knows where all of this is going to end? And this is, of course, why it comes back to where we started in terms of how we trade. I'm sure both Tom and the way we uh, approach market is, is, is so rules-based at the end of the day that it's not really our gut feel, certainly not on, my, on our side, it's not our gut feel at all. So, uh, like Tom said, I, I, it doesn't really matter if we're going to go to 40,000 on the Dow first. It, it probably matters more in, in the way the bubble eventually bursts. And I think it will. What's interesting about that is that if we are really concerned about the levels of asset prices, the dot-com bubble actually didn't come with a large recession afterwards. It was mainly just the asset prices and in particular the tech stock prices that collapsed. So it didn't have this long negative effect on the economy following that. And I that would be the best probably outcome. But as Tom said, I mean, there are so many other areas like Bitcoin and, and, and all of those things that are in a bubble. And I fully agree with Tom when he says, It's the narrative. It's the rhetoric. I happened to watch a, a video on YouTube the other day where one young Bitcoiner were talking at a conference last year, and he talked specifically, specifically about how to troll people who were no coiners, as they say, how to talk up Bitcoin and crypto and all of that. I mean, it was concerning because that's what we're seeing. And for those who don't necessarily know better, They're going to believe this stuff. But come on, it's not the first time you see that in big. We have seen that in the stock market also. You can call it pump and dump yeah. on social media. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that is actually what, you know, so narrative uh, mood, social mood, all of those things are incredibly important. 
but they're also the ones that are going to shift and change when the let's call it the bubble burst. Mm. It doesn't have to be a bubble, but of course, I think it is. Are you on TikTok, Tom? Uh, no, <laughs> no, sorry, no, I'm, I'm not. May I add a comment to something that, that, that lies close to my heart? And that is, I don't want to sound like uh, Mother Teresa here, but one of the things that I've, I've, I've spent a considerable amount of time was discussing with friends that are that way uh, inclined is the social inequality that has been created in the last 12 months as a result of the pandemic that we've seen globally. And we've seen that people like me who are well-to-do don't actually know what to spend their money on. So what do they do? Well, they do the thing that they tend to do, which is to invest it in, in real estate. Interestingly enough, there's also an, an, a, a, a cycle, um, Mr. Dewey of the Foundation of Recurring Studies, he, he spoke about an 18-year cycle. And I have a very close friend who actually is a, a real estate broker. And he says, and I quote, I've never seen anything like this since I started my career as a real estate broker, which incidentally was about 18 years ago. And he says, this can't carry on like this because people, normally we will have a waiting, like a week in Denmark, we call it a laying time, the, uh, the amount of days or weeks that a house or a flat or property is lying idle before someone finally makes a bid for it. And that idle time has been vastly reduced. And that's a behavioral trait. And the last time we saw that kind of behavioral trait where people would just almost have a panic buy, they just needed to get on board the property cycle, was exactly the last time just before it uh, imploded, which was in 2006 and seven. But my concern here is also that we have created a social inequality. And in a sense, the central banks have painted themselves into a corner that I, for one, am really struggling to see how you're going to get out of. Because if inflation begins to creep into society, then it won't take a lot before you tilt. This balance is so propped up on either side that you'd, it won't take a lot of leaning to one side, a bit of inflation, before those people who have bought with, with low interest loans all of a sudden are going to get a whammy with interest rates being risen because they've had to over leverage themselves just to get on board the property market because people like me who are well-to-do have pumped up the equity, have popped up the real estate market because where else are we going to put our money? except if we pile it back into the stock market. So this social inequality is deeply concerning because it's also the ones that is the lowest hanging fruit that's going to get shaken first. And I don't know if it's politically correct that people will lose their houses uh, like they did in the 1930s, but it's a real threat that if interest rates just rise a couple of percent, the ramification of the disposable income versus the income that is now spent on maintaining your debt is mm. going to whack the stock market in a spectacular fashion. Do you see the same picture, Nils? I have the same concern. Mm. Uh, and, and, and I think for me, again, it kind of goes with this interest rate cycle that, that I mentioned. I think that this will, unfortunately, it's going to be, it could well turn out to be the perfect storm, right? You have peak, peak, peak equity and asset prices. You have the lowest yields on record. Housing prices are at the high. And then they kind of all start to turn at the same time. I think that could be 
quite devastating, really. But I don't want to be, I don't want to sound like, you know, a big pessimist. It Because I think there are things you can do to, to cope with these things. But it's just that you just have to be open-minded and, and do things differently. Whatever worked getting us to where we are today is not going to work, I think, as well going forward. And I think that's what people just need to understand and, and be open to change in the way they uh, they invest. Mm. But talking about the whole GameStop, Bitcoin, Robin Hood, Tesla affair, and all these new retail investors we have in the market, it's not only retail investors who go for, for Bitcoins. You have JP Morgan, you have the big pensions funds. The problem is the low interest rate. So, so where do you go for returns? You go for Bitcoin, you go for gold. So it's not only the retail investors you can say that's they're to blame, Tom. There's a very famous saying that my first mentor, he taught me, and I want to pass this on to the to the listeners because it's a good one. There comes a point where you are no longer ret- you're no longer worried about the return on your capital, but you're, ret- you're worried about the return of your capital. And right now, everyone is worried about the return on their capital, but we could very, very, very easily see a point where we're worried about the return of their capital. And I know I've repeated myself here, but what you're seeing here is synonymous what you're seeing in every peak of every bubble. It is that there is very little regard for risk control. It's all about how much can I make? But a good trader once said to me, you know what? What makes you money in this industry is let the winners take care of themselves. All you have to do is to take care of the losses, manage the losses. And when I see youngsters and older like being attracted to the stock market as if it was some sort of, um, it can't go wrong, I can't possibly lose on this, almost like a buying panic, then we are near to the end of the bubble. However, I need to quantify that because I also know that a bubble can stretch itself out like it did in 98, 99. I could be out by a year here. And that's what my concern is. That's what I, as a trader and an investor, I have to manage that risk. I have to manage that. What if I'm right, but my timing is awful? I could I could end up losing quite a lot of money. So it's not just a question for me of putting everything down on, we're going down. I need to manage that position as well. And that takes... That's where conviction and courage comes in. You say, well, I'm going to risk that. And that's why it's so interesting to have Niels on board because trend following is a beautiful way of theoretically taking emotions emotions completely out of the equation of the decision-making process. So I should really let Niels speak more about that. I just want to add a couple of things to what Tom said is, first of all, I think what you mentioned but maybe what you should also have mentioned is, and I think you have a lot of this as well, it's the discipline. It's the discipline that the rules gives us that is so important. And, and just to add about trend following as such, people think we spend a lot of time worrying about the, the returns. We don't. The only thing we worry about is the, because returns we don't control. We do control the risk. So most of our time when we do our research is really about risk management as Tom said, the winners will take care of themselves, but it's all the losing trades, which are there are more of, actually. There are probably 60% losing trades and 40% winning trades. Those are the ones we we focus on. Mm. There's another trend going on at the moment, and this is this rotation from growth to value. Nils, what does that tell you about the current market, if anything? No, I think it's a reflection of what's going mm. on, for sure. I know there's a lot of talk about it. I'm not a specialist in in these things. I know that 
10 years ago, everybody was raving about value, how great a strategy it was. And, and now 10 years later, it hasn't done very well for a decade. And so people uh, are, are worried about that. And, and that's probably a, a time when, when it might change again. I think, again, these things go in, in cycles. But of course, if interest rates do go up, then clearly growth stocks are going to have some issues. And value stocks, uh, maybe in particular some of the banks and stuff like that, might have better times ahead. But I um, I don't really look at it per se. I think at the end of the day, if we're going to have anything that just is a fraction of what Tom and I might be worried about, probably most things are going to go down in price. Okay. Is it is it a fraction of your worries, Tom? No, I don't see this as a worry. I see it as an opportunity. And being the contrarian thinker that I am, that you see, I'm not. I don't even think that I'm a contrarian thinker. I'm just trying to do the the old Keynesian beauty contest. It's called third degree thinking. And I don't want to sound like a snob or, or make myself portray myself into something I am not because I'm not an academic. But the way I approach trading and, and investing is I'm trying to think, what am I thinking about? What am I concerned about? It is what are the other people thinking? And it seems to me as they don't have a concern yet. And it it concerns me that no one else is concerned. And I also know that when everybody heads for the exit, and I just have to say February 2020, and I nailed that one absolutely on a time cycle. That was the most dramatic example I have ever seen of everybody headed for the exit at the same time. And I, I believe that in order to really be at the front of this development, that's why I am taking these small short positions, hoping that they will then build into something much, much bigger. It's a bit like, you know, you toss a snowball, you throw it up in the hills, and you, you who knows what comes back down again. Um, so whether my concern is founded or not, I, I don't know, but I am personally concerned, but I don't see that. And I see that in the VIX index. I don't, I don't necessarily see the volatility pick up to the levels where I'm beginning to think the street is concerned. Mm. That makes sense. It does. Now, this volatile markets we have uh, been experienced may reflect a general uncertainty on uh, what's what's next. So I would like to address that, basically, the question right now. I'm happy to start with that. Okay, please. I think, and my portfolio reflects it, I think today is, by the way, today is the anniversary of the low in uh, in. 12th of March 2003 in the in the UK stock market and the secondary low that we had in the Dow and the Nasdaq at the same time. Uh, and it's not because of that anniversary, but I actually think that what we're seeing right here, right now, of all the parameters that I'm using, and some of them are quite esoteric as well, but I think that we have a top in the making right here, right now, with the S&P around the 4,000 mark and the Dow around the 32,500 mark. And that is what I am betting on. Mm. I can add to that that yesterday was the Fibonacci 21-year anniversary of the Nasdaq hitting its high before Please the don't get uh, tech Tom bubble. I was, hoping, <laughs> I was hoping you were going to come out of the woodwork with your Fibonacci. I was just goading you to come up with that Fibonacci. Please, let's get it out there. And what does it tell us? Well, I don't know. I, I don't know what these things tell us. Having said that, and I'll just throw that out there to people who can go and, and look it up. If you are familiar with Fibonacci, you can take the year 2021 and you can just subtract the Fibonacci sequence and you're going to hit all the, the highs, whether it's 08, uh, 2000, 1987, 66, 32, it's all there. So is that coincidence? I don't know. We'll see. Time will tell. And as, as Tom said, 
these things can you can be out if or if it's a big cycle and this might be a really big cycle you can be out for quite a while before it happens but i think that what's more concerning or not to say more concerning but what's also concerning to me how things have changed since the last crisis right for example passive investing right the flows that we see going into the markets which are indiscriminate of price it's just the flow well, as long as it's the inflow, people will just close their eyes and buy until they fulfill the order flow. But that also goes the other way around. So if we start seeing what Tom was mentioning, everybody going for the exit, and we start seeing the flows of these funds turn negative, well, their job is just to sell. No questions asked. So I think some of these changes that we've seen in the market since we had the last major crisis, because I don't even, I don't even know that last year was a crisis per se. It was certainly severe. It was a health crisis for sure. But these V-shaped recoveries that we then see makes it doesn't feel like it, it was a big crisis when people look back, at least not in the markets per se. There are other people and other consequences that I'm fully aware of. But I think if we start seeing a change in, in people's investment behavior and, and also just from people not necessarily making money on all their call options and they start losing out and change the behavior of not always buying calls, but maybe they're going to start start to buy some put options at some point. That's also going to change the flows and the way people are hedging and all of that. So, so in that scenario, what, what are the signals that you're looking for, Nils? Well, I mean, I think, again, for me, first of all, uh, price have to reflect that. I'm a true believer is that all information is in the price, right? So if, if people start changing their behavior, we should start seeing it in the price. Of course, you can go and look these numbers up. You can look at the put-call ratio. You can look at equity flows. All of this is actually public knowledge. And if you do your homework, you can you can do that. I don't know if... I mean, we, we wouldn't trade after it. We would just trade after what the price does. But I just think it's, it's things that people need to uh, be aware of because it changes the market psychology. And another thing that's happened in, in the last many years, I guess, since social media was invented is that we tend to end up in these echo chambers where we just listen to our what we agree with. And that also goes back to Tom's point about the, the uh, dividedness we see, not just from in terms of those who have and those who have not, but also in opinion. It's very rare to find, and I think actually that's where podcasts do a really good job, to have civil conversation where people disagree. Because everything that happens on social media is not civil anymore. Mm. So that's another thing that... Again, the, the social side of things and the behavioral, I mean, trend following to some extent reflects behavioral invest, uh, in, in human behavior. And so I think all of those things may be difficult to see right now, but it might become very evident once these things start to change. Tom Hogo, will we have a, a bull market but buckle up? Or what do you see? So I, I draw some comparisons to what I saw back in 1997, 98. You had some very sharp corrections in a strong bull market. But what was significant, you asked, Nils, what are you looking for? What are the signs that the things are rolling over? And one of the things that I am acutely aware of is this disparity between what you perhaps could coin the value and then the super and tech sector. And when I see that the Dow Jones is making an all-time high, on a day where the Nasdaq is really struggling, then it just casts my mind back to my 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 early career in 99, 2000, when that 
was a beginning sign that not all was well in tech stocks and they simply just had run out of steam. Now, what's interesting for me as a trader slash historian, if you will, is that the bear market from 2000 that started on the 14th of January 2000 in the Dow Jones index when it hit 11,753, if you want to be exact, and to the 10th of October 2002, that it was actually a series of sharp declines followed by very sharp rallies. And then you just had this progressive grind down as you often see in bear market. So if we are headed into a bear market, it will last two, three years, but it will be a bear market that for many intents and purposes will seem imperceptible to the untrained eye. It will simply feel, oh, well, we're back up to the almost to the old highs. But those of us who've been in this for a game for a couple of decades will see this, that our job will then be to sell short into the rallies. And that's what I am mentally preparing myself for, because for the last five, six years, all I've had to do was to buy the dips. But I begin, I'm beginning to see now the signs that I saw 20 years ago is that now I have to begin to sell into the rallies. Mm. Now we only have a few minutes left. Now Warren Buffett has this, I think one of his best quotes, it's only when the tide goes out do you discover who've been swimming naked. Now who in the stock market will be caught with their pants down best of 2021, Nils? Oh, that's always difficult to forecast. I mean, I think, unfortunately, a lot of the uh, private individuals will struggle, not least those who have been used to almost like banking on some kind of income from buying call options uh, every week, every month, they would be worth more and so on and so forth. They're going to be in for a little bit of a shock. But unfortunately, my main concern is probably uh, those institutions who are forced to some extent, to uh, own government debt and other kinds of debt. I mean, we haven't even touched on high yield and junk bonds and all those great things, right? I mean, they're in a bubble as well, in, in my opinion. I mean, the thing is that I think most investors probably don't know that they are in some kind of short volatility asset or trade. And I think that's another thing that we may have to get used to is that volatility is going to come back and it's going to stay significantly elevated from where it is today. So I think that's another risk that we may see. And I couldn't help noticing this morning, for example, that a lot of the last kind of uh, optimism we see in the markets have been pinned to the vaccine rollout, right? So since November of last year. And then I read the headlines in the Danish, or I can't remember, it wasn't even the Danish newspaper, that Denmark, Norway, and Iceland suspends the use of AstraZeneca COVID vaccine because it reports an increase of blood cloth. I mean, can you imagine if we realize three months, six months from now that those vaccines that we've been using are not safe? I mean, that in itself could be, and I'm not saying, I'm not predicting it will but be. But there's so many other vaccines coming up. Yeah, Come on. but none of them mm. are really that, you know, mm. tried and tested. But we're talking about a catalyst that could yeah. undermine the confidence. We're not talking about whether we believe that the vaccine is not. It's it's all about perception. The stock market is about perception. We, we, we spoke about this earlier and Nils mentioned it. It's about confidence. And I don't want to be a hoaxer. I don't want to be a vaccine conspiracy theorist either. This is not about whether I believe I should have a vaccine. And this is about, well, what's the public perception? Do they believe in this? And if you begin to undermine the confidence of the rhetoric that we have betted our sanity on, that is taking away from us. That will be pretty close to anarchy as you'll ever come. 
So Tom, in short, what would be your conclusion for 2021? I, I made that very clear. I think in these dying days of, of no, that's that's not what I wanted to say. In these days of, uh, of, of March 2021, I think that we are making a significant top in the Dow Jones index, in the S&P 500 index. And that's just, it's not necessarily just what I see on, on Fibonacci, although it has an uncanny ability to nail some of these major cycles. Whether it's because we are governed by it or not, I, I don't really want to get into that rhetoric. Because... That'll be in our next show, Tom. You can talk yeah, about the Fibonacci. So. That will not be today. Because on that note, let's wrap this week's conversation up. Gentlemen, Tom Hogo and Nils Kostoblasen, thank you very much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for sharing. Thanks, Penilla. And thank you for tuning in and for listening for this special edition of the Finance Unplugged. You're welcome to visit our website, toptradersunplugged.com, where you can also find the Top Trader Unplugged podcast on systematic investing, hosted by our guest today, Nils Kostopoulos. And I hope to see you in the next episode of Finance Unplugged. Until then, take good care of yourself and your money. Thanks for listening to the Finance Unplugged podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions relating to the Finance Unplugged series, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we will try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of Finance Unplugged. <laughs>